This week on the Three Rings podcast. We can't just say yes because it's big. This is where you should be making your money. That would have been a tiring day for those dogs. They're just not parting with enough of that sponsorship money. Oh, I'm going to come right out and say I think Pineapple is dying, dying of death. By the end of it, the entire field was just covered in dancers. Even if they came to us with, ah, oh, we've only got £100 per dancer, we'd be like, do one. Welcome to the second episode of the Free Rings podcast, where we discuss industry issues, news and stories. My name's Stuart Bishop, and I'm here with my fellow director, Bailey J. Muir. Hey, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much for asking. Wonderful. So, people, if you've not already, get down below, hit a like on the video, subscribe to the channel and hit the notification bell up top. And you'll know all about it when we release next week's episode. Right, let me tell you guys what is on today's show. We've got four brand new topics. And the first thing we're going to be discussing is something that is blowing up on TikTok, which is Shay's Dance Archive. And then we're going to be discussing the new kid on the block, Playground London. Further on, we're going to go on to what makes a great Super Bowl halftime show as we hear the news that Usher has been announced. And then finally, um, we're going to be reporting on the Black Sabbath Ballet and also um, the Cinderella controversy. If you don't know what it is, wait until the end and you'll see. Right. Okay. let's get on to the first topic then. We're always going on about the fact that, um, you know, we feel that dance is being lost in, you know, over a period of time technical jazz and different styles seem to be used less and less than just bog standard commercial styles in videos. Bailey, you, you, you put, gave, well, it was you who told me about this. So why don't you take the lead on this topic? There is a new music video. Well, I said you, it's actually been out about a month or two, but there's a music video out there, which has just been blowing up all over social media, which is Jungle's Back to 74, choreographed by an incredible artist called Cher, and the public are just going wild for it. It's probably not quite in the territory where you would call it technical jazz, although there is absolutely a technique to it. However, it is certainly of an old school era. It feels very sort of fussy influenced, which for myself and Stuart just unlocked this fascinating conversation around, okay, the public still love this. Is it that we're completely wrong as dancers when we think, oh, all they want now is commercial, all they want is hip-hop. It's a video you're going to watch. This is the thing, you know, a lot of videos nowadays, it's it's like dancers become once again sort of just background, where dance can really tell a story, as we know, you know. And when I watched that video, I was like, first of all, I was like, oh, you know, um, that would have been a tiring day for those dancers because they would have had to have done it, you know, a lot of times, a lot of angles. And it's proper, you know, it's proper dance. It's energetic dance. It's, um, it is. It's at one point they're doing the frug. Um, is it the frug? Is that what it's called? I'm sure it's the frug. Yeah, they're doing that. And, and it's very, the whole time they're doing this kind of rhythm in their bodies. So, When you say it's blowing up on TikTok, what does that mean when it blows up on TikTok? And what does that look like for a music video? How how much more, you know, blowing up on TikTok, does that guarantee it to be a hit or or what? Essentially in this day and age, yeah, because it's just racking up numbers. And obviously, kind of as we were discussing last week, where the business model and music industry is flipped, 
the way that that song is scaling views on YouTube, they're bound to be making money off because the public have just gone wild for this dancehall that they've not seen for 40, 50 years, really, other than a very musical theatre environment. However, also, obviously, that video is going to have been converting people to go and listen to that song on Spotify, iTunes as well. So not only is it going to be YouTube monetization, but it's going to be massively helping their streaming numbers, which is where artists make their money nowadays. To see, oh, to see dance like that. And, you know, they're not, they're not pirouetting or they're not jumping in the air, but they're, you know, you've got to be trained to do that kind of style. Otherwise, you're just, you're just not going to look good. This is it. It's got that different type of energy pulsing through it, which is so different than what is presented. It does demand something completely different from the dancers in terms of technique, even if that technique isn't like crazy pirouettes. But it also unlocks this interesting conversation around what actually creates an iconic music video now. If I was to try and think of the most iconic music video from the past 10 years, I would automatically go to the Sia videos where you've got Maddie Ziegler as a star. And that obviously is like technical perfection. For the public, this is obviously what they like. Those Sia videos, that's what becomes a classic. They see this back on 74 and they love it. It is really making me think, are we actually giving the public what they want or are we putting out the styles that the dancers want to dance? Let's go on to the second topic, which is the new kid on the block. So I, I'm on social media. I like to, I like to check things out, what's going on in the industry, um, you know, and all of a sudden, all over the place, no matter what social media I was on, I, I seem to see these very cool, very nicely branded posters of a brand new dance studio in London called Playground. Bailey, fill us in. Playground has come over from LA. Um, some people might know Kenny Wormald, who is the founder of um, Playground out in LA, came to London... It's probably been uh, four, five months now, I think. Um, and at that time, as soon as he was hitting me, he was just like, now that's interesting. Didn't necessarily know this is what was coming, but now we've got Playground LA and we've got Playground London. Brand new studio, but carrying that whole reputation over from LA, where in LA, it's easily in the top two, three studios. It'd be very hard to pick really which one is a leader. It's that high up. Really, really good thing for us in the London scene that, we now have a playground. I mean, without a doubt, it looks it looks exciting. The posters got me straight away, and it was like because um, I saw Lily, I saw Dancers Network's Lily. Um, I was like, oh, who's she? Looks cool on that. And then I was like, playground, what is that? Um, and <laughs> good. At one point, when I was a choreographer, I knew about everything, <laughs> all the dancers, all the choreographers. But if you're not choreographing, if you're not completely you know, it, it, it's like things change so quickly. Um, you know, obviously I know of Millennium and that, but um, but yeah. So I'm thinking, wow, this looks fantastic. You know, and they, and they've got all they're, they've they're, they're inviting all the big hitters. It seems, but it begs the question: Is there room for new studios? And if new studios come, will old studios have to go? Now, the reason I say this, because obviously in, in literally the space of a week, I see Playground, which looks fantastic. Then I've been walking past a studio in Finsbury Park for, for a while. 
um, which has got great branding, great branding on the front of it. I don't know. I haven't seen their branding, uh, their proper branding yet or whatever, but they had like this cool um, sort of pictures up in the windows and I've been walking past it for months and you then said, oh, there's a new studio in Finsbury. I said, I've walked past it. And that is called, what is it? The Manor. Is it the Manor London or just the Manor? I'm not sure, to be honest. At the minute, I'm calling it the Manor, but I've probably made that up myself. Who knows? I don't think it's actually opened yet. On the Instagram, it says open in October. So it's any time. By the time this podcast comes out, maybe it is already open. But yeah, at the minute, it's not quite there. But they've just started to announce teachers. And they've got all those exact same big hitters. Surely that means some studios are going to start losing out on these big hitters, you know. And, and we've seen that over the over the last few years, where during the pandemic, um, Pineapple kind of had an exodus for for all different reasons. I taught there for twenty over tw- twenty two years. The reason I left was because they were asking me to do, you know, I had to do online. I didn't want to teach online, you know. Talking, I want to be in person. So I was just like, do you know what? That's it for me. And I know other teachers left for the same reason and for other reasons. So then people go to base. But, you know, base, as we talked about last week, is, go, you know, maybe base is seeing, oh, if if playground's coming and the manor's coming, maybe that's why we need to have their, their, their upcoming college. What's, what's your opinion on that? Is, is, is there too many studios now? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is a risk of that coming. There is now a supply and demand issue. You've got plenty of dancers to go around attending these studios, but I don't believe you've got enough teachers to cover that whole circuit effectively enough. Obviously, at the minute, we've kind of got base and pineapple coinciding with each other. Most of your top hitters at this point in time, you would say were at base. When those top hitters then start spreading to a manor, to a playground, how are any of those studios all going to be able to coincidingly fill up those spaces? It doesn't feel like it can work. It doesn't feel like there are enough in-demand classes around to be able to actually support the model. I definitely think we're about to see some changes in that sort of London scene. I'm going to come right out and say I think Pineapple is dying. It's dying of death. Like, you know... I know that probably means if I go to a class now, I'll have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, they won't just let me in. But, you know, I mean, not that I'd probably go to a class now. I think my, my dancing days are probably over. But, um, however, I wouldn't mind doing Jimmy's. <laughs> Jimmy's locking class there. But, I yeah, I just, you know, Pineapple used to be where all the commercial dancers were, all the rehearsals were, you know, it was the place. Um and there's this feeling over the last 10 years, you've seen the whole of that area developed apart from Pineapple. Like, so, you know, it must be very, very expensive. Um, what's the word? Expensive area to be in now, Covent Garden. So, yes, that's 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 where I think. And, you know, because uh, there's still, you've still got, you know, um, uh, Dance Attic which is still, you know, I went there recently um, and seen bustling, used, it was very busy. You've got dance works um, there. You've got ones like Flow, which have come up over the last, you know, five, ten years. Still got the Hubbin Studio 68 as well. 
just ticking along in the background. There are a lot of studios out there now. The fact that you say studio, I didn't even think of Studio 68. Um, and then the hub, um, it seems like, I don't know where that's at, but it, it, it's had a few, a few different guises in a very short, short space of time, it seems. So we'll see. Um, but for now, Playground is the one. Yeah. Oh, I would say so. It's, it just looks phenomenal, doesn't it? It's bound to take over because how can it not when it looks that good? If you're enjoying this week's episode, why not check out some great content from some of our Three Rings talent? Catch choreographer Ian Bannum discussing Latin and ballroom training and tales from the industry as a guest on Driving With Dancers. Or take a look at Three Rings influencer Alexa Williams giving a realistic week in the life of an auditioning performer. We're on to the Super Bowl. Bailey, tell us, what's what's the Super Bowl news? Who's going to be doing it? Yeah, so they've just announced this week the 2024 headline show will be done by Usher. For me, Usher was was a phenomenal artist. I, I, I say was because I, I haven't really seen him do much for a long time, it seems. Um, there must be a lot of people out there who probably haven't got a clue who Usher is. Um you know, but what I will say, if you if you don't know who Usher is, check him out. A phenomenal dancer, phenomenal singer, um, and phenomenal performer. Very inspired by Michael Jackson, I would say. Um, however, when I when I, I saw a little thing, oh, here's all Usher's hits, and this is why he's doing Super Bowl. All his hits were very very old. I don't think he's had any big hits, you know, in recent years. Unless you, unless you, has he had any recent hits? I wouldn't say so. I'd say like the last big era for him was probably like 2013, 2014. Are you excited by Usher or, you know, some, so you're, you're 25. Would a 25 year old be excited by Usher performing at the Super Bowl? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I think the standard of him as a performer just opens up so much potential for how that performance will play out. Like, if we look at the past few years where you've had a Rihanna, you had the whole Dr. Dre, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar masterpiece a year before. These were incredible half times, but they weren't. I mean, Rihanna could have been, it had more potential than it really unlocked, if I'm completely honest, in my opinion. But Usher has that potential to be like Justin Timberlake's from a few years ago, where the whole thing was just this big, huge extravaganza of a show. There's the potential to have that real great dancing there. Obviously, the songs are just an absolute vibe. There's so much, like, technical aspects you can put in with that, with the lighting effects. I really think it's going to be a phenomenal halftime show. There's not many people who have got songs that you can guarantee, if you go out to a nightclub that is playing sort of pop music, you can guarantee that if there is no one dancing, if they play Usher, yeah, which they always do, boom. It's like Michael Jackson's um, uh, Billie Jean, you know, or Can't uh, can't Stop Till You Get Enough. You'll always hear these at parties or at discos or at, you know, weddings and stuff like that. It's an absolute, I, I had to do it. I had to choreograph um, for the Pineapple Dance DVD Volume 4 or something like that. We, um, Rudai, back in the day, we choreographed there. It was the instructional video. And one of the songs was Usher, yeah. 
And we had to dance this over and over and over and over again. By the end of it, I hated the song. But um, but then I haven't heard it for a long time. And I heard it the other week. I was like, oh, God, this is such a tune. Such a tune. But why do you think Usher's been picked? It's, don't you think it's a strange, a strange like, pick? It definitely is a strange choice because they do usually go for someone who feels very current. But then in saying that, even a Rihanna last year, Rihanna hadn't released new music in absolutely years. But still, as soon as she got picked for that halftime show, instantly relevant again. I mean, not that she weren't relevant, but she was like back on top. And maybe that's exactly what's going on with Usher. Maybe this is actually built to promote some sort of comeback. Maybe he's got a tour coming, a new album, etc. It feels like that could be the platform. For example, if we look at like an artist like The Weeknd, who did it a few years ago, off the back of his halftime show, he literally like doubled his ticket sales for his tour overnight. So it's a real marketing platform for the artists. Right. So what makes a good um, halftime show then? For me, it's I remember Madonna's one. Madonna's one a few years back, not a few, probably five, ten years, I don't know, five years ago or whatever. But she was sensational absolutely sensational she had great dancers the lighting was all amazing i prefer that type of one to like a, a dr dre one the dr dre was brilliant just because it was who it was you know you had eminem there you had um um you had all uh what's his name hanging 50 cent um yeah and then kendrick lamar who i actually don't know that much about kendrick lamar um i felt like oh why is he jumping on it? <laughs> on it? But um, for the younger generation, they, you all love Kendrick Lamar. So, so yes, what makes a good halftime show for you? I would say the scale of the show. I think because of the venue you're performing in, obviously those football fields are so huge. It's like you've got to fill the field. This is something I think Justin Timberlake absolutely smashed. I mean, I'm a huge Justin Timberlake fan, so I'm probably totally biased here. But the way he went from inside the stadium at the very start then he came out by the end of it the entire field was just covered in dancers there was barely an empty space and I think that's what it takes something like the Dr Dre one as iconic as it was because they used those little like block houses it stayed so central to the middle that it just felt like it was built to be on like an x-factor stage it didn't feel like it was made for that stadium I, for me I think the key is that the creative is made for a stadium it's not just a random concept that they chuck in there yeah no i know what you mean regarding it, it the dr dre one was just it was about just the people wasn't it you know yeah that's it it was too contained yeah um and then it's so funny because you look back you, you, down the line everyone made such a big thing of the michael jackson one but at the time you know before that no one was doing big shows so michael jackson kind of sort of started it but now they've taken it to a different level. Some of the, some of some of the lighting that they do uh, on the floor and just it's phenomenal, isn't it? This is it. It's that production value that makes it. All the technical elements, all of the dancers, is what really brings it together. And this leads us perfectly into talking about how those artists are going to get paid. It's not only the dancers who traditionally haven't been paid. It's almost everyone across the production, the lighting guys, the sound, the whole lot. The only thing they've really paid for is the equipment, the sets. Personnel-wise, 
everyone has essentially been for free, which is just crazy. To give you a few stats, so Apple are the people who currently present the halftime show. People will probably know it used to be Pepsi. Apple's sponsorship deal with the NFL means that Apple pay them 50 million, not 50 million pounds, they pay, Apple pay them 50 million dollars per year for the halftime show. The NFL, on average, are only giving the artists performing a $15 million budget for that performance. So the NFL are just pocketing $35 million of that. And then the artists are scrabbling around to try and get everything else done. And it's just not enough money. As much as that sounds like a huge amount right now, when you break it down to all the people needed to create something of that scale, it's just not. For example, to give a real-life scenario, the weekend when he did it a few years ago, he got given a thirteen million pound production budget. He topped it up with I keep saying pounds, sorry, dollars. He had to top that up with a further seven million of his own money to achieve the show he wanted. And at that point in time, that was still without paying the dancers, without paying half of the technical personnel around him. They're just not parting with enough of that sponsorship money. So, so you're saying. You know, let's let's go to what you know what we know. The dancers, for example, the dancers they do, they've been doing it for free. Are they so? What about this year, Usher? Almost every halftime show there's been, the dancers have been on there for free. However, for off from the back of Dr. Dre's halftime performance, it finally started to break on social media around this sort of outrage around it, and it really took off. Shout out to Taja Riley on this over in the US because she absolutely led the way. Such a shining light for our industry. Anyone watching, if you don't know who she is, please go and check her out. So much you can learn. But yeah, essentially, Taja led this movement, which in between the Dr. Dre halftime and Rihanna did this year, finally meant that um, SAG-AFTRA sat down with the NH NHL, NFL, and negotiated out a deal with them. So the artists, well, the dancers at least, as of Rihanna's performance, now get paid $15 per hour. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know what? Well, but, you know, people is, in America, it seems right, you know, it's up to SAG-AFTRA to do everything, yeah? And it seems like they're, they're much more successful than, than um, I'm not even going to name the, the, the travesty of, a, of, a, of an organisation we have over here in the UK. Um, but... What's it got to do with SAG-AFRA? Surely, where are they getting the dancers from? Surely the dancers are uh, being booked through agents and management. So it comes down to the management, surely. Right, no, we're not. I'm not set. If someone came to us and said, right, yeah, we want all your dancers, free rings dancers to, to perform at, um, you know, Great Bowl, Great Bowl in the UK, we'd be like, yeah, do one. You know, uh, it, it, even if they came to us with, ah, oh, we've only got £100 per dancer, we'd be like, do one. I'm not expecting fucking equity, excuse my language, to ever sort out stuff for us. You know, it comes down to us as individual agents and managers to say, absolutely no. So what the hell has happened there? How on earth has it gone on for so long? And then got to $15, $15. So by all accounts, the dancers have always been put through agencies and managers. So it is really a failure at the agency and manager level. 
And I would still say, even to this day, yeah, they're now getting paid. But $15 per hour is not remotely enough. And I mean, even for sag after I don't understand why they've agreed to that. It's mental. That's what you get paid in, in bloody working at the co-op or, or Tesco's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to make this ultra clear, how these figures convert to the budget, I've wrote down a whole breakdown that I just want to take us through so dancers understand exactly where these fees come from and exactly why they are wrong. So, your average contract length for the Super Bowl is nine lots of nine hour long days. On the basis of $15 per hour, this makes the contract worth a total of $1,215. When presented as a package fee like this, for some people, that may sound good. However, this way of presenting the fee is exactly the issue. To expose the issue, let's scale this contract instead using the UK average for commercial dancers, which is £350 per day. As the UK dancer tends to work a 10-hour day, this makes the fee £35 per hour. When we convert £35 into dollars, we are now working with a value of approximately $42.25. This means for the full contract, using the industry average, each dancer should be paid a total of $3,422.25, making the current fees over $2,000 below industry average. Finally, to expose how easily the Super Bowl could do better, your average Super Bowl commercial costs $6.5 million. This means if they aired one more commercial during the Super Bowl and used that money to pay for dancers, they could afford to hire 1,899 dancers at the correct rate. It's clear from these stats, there is no problem here other than the fact they simply don't want to pay properly. You can see how dancers would want to do it, right? So it's, it, whether, it, you know, can can you say, well, it's the dancers who should be saying the final, no, I'm not going to do it for that price. No, it shouldn't be the dancers. The dancers have no idea what they should be and what they shouldn't, yeah? You can say as much as you want about, oh, no, there's these organisations sorting this out, but... If they knew what they were doing, it would have these things would have been sorted out years ago. It's the agents and the managers and people higher up who are the ones in control of all this. And, you know, as an agent, we know, we know we ain't going to take any shit from anyone. You can't afford it. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Whether you are small budget, small budget, making a little video, you know, personal project or a big thing, you've got to pay for what um, for the services that you're that you're that you're that you're using, it's as simple as that. Because the lighting, oh, we've been here so so many times before. The lighting, the cameramen, the catering, you know, all these things—they're not they're not giving it for cheap or, or for free. Uh, well, at the Super Bowl, they are. You say for the Super Bowl, they're blood, they're mugs, they're mugs. Mm. And th this is a problem. The agent should have it locked in before the talent even get a sniff of an opportunity. Because there is obviously this side, it's a great credit on the CV. But this is exactly the mentality that we need to dispel from the industry. You shouldn't be working for free for the sake of a credit. The argument the client will try to give is that the music artist is also working for free. 
for example, Michael Jackson weren't paid, The Weeknd weren't paid, Justin Timberlake weren't paid. But the difference here is they are there marketing their product. They will directly get concert ticket sales, streaming numbers, YouTube monetization off the back of that performance. So they will still make money. Yourself as the dancers, you don't have a product to market. If we're going to have a Maddie Ziegler halftime show, then cool if Maddie Ziegler wants to go and do it for free to sell her tour. But as the backing dancers, it's just not acceptable. You are not benefiting enough from just that credit to be out there doing it for free or even for cheap. When Madonna did hers, I remember, I remember she had Les Twins in her performance. Now, if they were doing it for free, it didn't matter whether they're being paid at that point because they were featured right there. They would have made money off the back of that. Now, if someone sends us a, a, you know, we've had show rules before and it's got, look, you know, they've done the Brit Awards set for there's a hundred people on stage here and we, I can't even see who it is. So, so they could just make that shit up. Do you know what I mean? You could, I, in fact, I've danced in 15 Super Bowls. You would never know. You would never know. I could show you. Yes. There you go. There's, there's the weekend's performance. I'm right there, but you can't see because I wasn't one of the featured. I'm just one of the, you know, um, but obviously Les Twins, I'm sure they, I'm sure they would have been being paid. Do you know what I mean? By Madonna, I'm sure. Um, however, it is, if you are featured, there is so much more to be leveraged. But as a normal dancer, you're not featured. You're just a, you're just a, you're just a bod, basically. Just a, a body. Yeah, this is it. We can't let it slide just because it's the big job. These big jobs are exactly what should be allowing a dancer's career to be a consistent career, to be well-paying, to support their lifestyle. If we're not getting that from the big jobs, where the hell are we getting it from? We can't just say yes because it's big. This is where you should be making your money. Uh, it's, a, it's another subject that we're going to need to talk about, isn't it? Because, you know, <laughs> when, we, when we were doing the notes, um, we were going to talk more about Usher. Um, but we both said, oh, you know, we're going to just go into into a rant there about about. I mean, it's just disgusting. It's just disgusting, and it's it's weak artists. It's weak mentality. It is of you know, and it's all the way through the industry. It's weak. Once you get to the entertainment industry, where it becomes more business like, you know, people are are, are wiser. But you know, performing arts level dancers you know musical theater it's like everyone has got a weak mentality they don't dare to say it's like ah, oh, it's like so many policies and issues that we're seeing being discussed here in the uk it's like god how long do you want to talk about them just bloody get on with it and do some action like can i can i just play devil's advocate on that play is it play that, play devil's advocate go on is it that the artists are weak can you actually blame the artist for that? I, from my side, I would say it's just the agents and managers being weak. Because literally, I have no interest in dancing anymore. But if someone was to call me up tomorrow and say that there's an opportunity to go and dance behind Justin Timberlake, like I'd pay to go and do that. Never mind, do it for free. I don't know if you can blame the artists. I think actually just the artists shouldn't be told until it's been sorted. It's the agents and managers that are the gatekeepers being weak even letting the artists have an opportunity to agree to do it for free. I don't think they're the people that should be blamed. No, no, uh, I I take that back. You're right. You're right. You're right. However, an artist does need to 
um, have, you know, sort their, have their own um, house in order of self-respect and dignity for where, you know, if Michael Jackson was alive and he, and he, and, and in fact, when Michael Jackson, <laughs> true story, originally before uh, Mark Summers was was booked to because Mark Summers was going to provide I think the extras and the um, the background for the tour of Michael Jackson the Michael Jackson tour um, when he came here you know before he the one before he died basically well or, originally we had been Rudi had been contacted and then um, they it, I don't know something happened the management got chucked out or the road so, somehow the structure got changed and then we. We then weren't the people who were going to do it, and it was going to be Mark Summers. So, um, but the point of that is, is I actually <laughs> I would have done it. I I remember thinking at that point I was a very successful choreographer. At that point, though, I was thinking, hey, even though I'm a successful choreographer and I'm doing TV shows and pop stars and all this, if he if my, if Jacko wanted me on there being a little begging boy uh, on the uh, on the Earth song. Yeah, or um, we are the world holding hands. I, I would have been there. I would have been there absolutely for free. <laughs> I would have paid him. I would have paid him. This is exactly it. I definitely agree with the dancers. The artists need to have their houses in order. But I don't think that actually comes with saying no to the job. Saying no to the job doesn't help their career. What should actually happen is they get that. They go, all right, well, the job's good, so I'll go and do the job. I'm dropping this agent the seconds it's done. They should not be accepting their agents putting that to them. If your agent's giving you that, you need to leave. It just shouldn't be happening. Yes, completely agree. Completely agree. It's well, we know it ourselves. Do you know what I mean? As agents, we don't take any shit. Do you know what I mean? People have got so, you know, you can't come at us where we can look at your website. Look at the clients you're working with. Look at how, I mean, you can find out everything about a company nowadays. So it's very hard to hoodwink people that you haven't got the budget. <laughs> like, God, you know, but people will do. The thing is, the higher up you are, the the more stricter you are with sticking with budgets and things like that. Um so it's just they should know it's a lot of the time people just don't know what the budget should be for artists and that then comes down to the education from the agent or the casting director um to be able to say well look if you want me to cast this for you you're gonna have to have this amount of budget you know this is it and it's the strength as the agent or as the casting director when push comes to shove and they go okay this is my budget this is how many dancers i want if they can't afford it and can't increase the budget, it's having the strength to go, okay, you can't book that many dancers. You want 100, you can have 50. Don't just let it slide because it's what they want. There is this danger of the agents and the casting directors getting too hooked on making sure their client is happy, that actually the talent underneath are the ones that just get entirely screwed over. It's like everyone's moving too selfishly in the industry. We've got to stay strong for the people we look after. Yes, we should. Um, right. So, final topic, and this is a this is off the back of last week. If you if you haven't seen the first episode, we were discussing. Uh, there was a, a recent ballet uh, BBC documentary which uh, had um, awful allegations um, in regards to abuse and fat shaming and and all sorts. Um, 
However, we also, we talked about that, but we also talked about the fact that we feel that coming from a marketing point of view, you know, um, as well as free, free rings, we also have free our media. Um, and from a marketing point of view, we were saying, look, ballet's dying, basically. Unless they come up with radical ideas, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. You know, ballet is gradually going to die because it's, it's becoming an art form which actually doesn't suit the tastes and the, um, the patterns and behaviours of humans today. You know, it's changing. We don't want stick thin people. We want healthy people. And it's, and it's not allowed now, really. You know, it's not socially acceptable. Um, so we were, we were sort of saying, look, there's a lot of things in ballet that's going to, that is killing it. Fast forward to this week and we've had, there's two ballet stories. First one is that there is a Black Sabbath um, ballet, um, which I actually haven't got down who, who, who's, who's doing it, it um, which I should. It's the Birmingham Royal Ballet. I knew it was Birmingham. Yeah. And that makes sense because Black Sabbath, um, Ozzy Osbourne was, is Birmingham's um, favourite son. Um, and which uh which i always often, whenever I, I don't know if you remember the osbournes as in the original series the osbournes is so long ago now but i was always like so like stoked that he was british <laughs> you know yay um and then the other radical thing so there's that um i'm gonna get your point of view on these in a minute is the whole cinder fella uh controversy if you haven't seen it um type in cinder fella piers morgan basically Actually, why don't you explain what's what's going on with what is the Cinderfella? Yeah, so Cinderfella is a production getting put on by the Scottish Ballet, where essentially the role of Cinderella is going to have one guy engaged to play the role and one woman engaged to play the role, and they're going to take the audience by surprise every night as to which person they see. It's not going to be announced. Just when the curtain goes up, you'll suddenly find out which version of the show you're seeing. So it's using this element of surprise as a marketing technique, which essentially hit Piers Morgan with controversy around whether it is okay or not for a guy to be playing Cinderella. And really, from what myself and Stuart are seeing, it was completely the wrong argument. Well, just an argument that didn't need to be posed, to be honest. What is actually good to recognise here is that is a genius move on Ballet's behalf. They found something unique, they found the niche that can get people coming in the element of surprise is the greatest form of marketing it's a genius idea for me it was like well there you go this is it this is the radical thing you need because look what's happening you've got Piers Morgan talking going on you know no but no news is bad news basically that is going to be sold out it's going to be sold out you watch oh without a doubt this is it there's going to be tens of thousands of more people knowing that this ballet is on than have known that there's ever been a ballet production in the past 10 years. It's a genius move. Like They probably knew a Piers Morgan show would pick that up and they betted on it and it's come true. I, I think they will have been sat there watching that being like, yep, we got what we wanted. And it's just so refreshing to see ballet actually exploring these new ideas and way of presenting their art that is going to appeal to a mainstream. To tie it back in with the Black Sabbath ballet, it's putting that modernised edge. As dancers, we all love going to see a Swan Lake or a Nutcracker. But these are the ballets that 
everyone knows are 100, 200, 300 years old. They don't have that same modern day appeal. So it's picking it up and shifting that genre. For example, to draw a comparison with Shakespeare, this is exactly where a Lion King can come along and pick up a Shakespeare story and deliver it through a modern day medium. And it becomes its own standalone. But for a real Shakespeare fan, then they're going, oh, okay, Shakespeare's still alive, it's still modern. Because of Lion King, Shakespeare's going to be told for at least another 100 years worth on top of what its lifespan, may, its lifespan maybe would have been beforehand. This is what ballet needs to tap into, and it looks like is tapping into from these two stories. Hold on, time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what are you saying there? The Lion King? Are you saying the Lion King's based on Shakespeare? Yeah, the Lion King is Hamlet or Macbeth. Let me Google it. It's one of them. I had no idea of that. I love the Lion King, and my son, my son loves the Lion King. Um, and and the, the, there's there's offshoot Simba um, cartoons as well that he loves. Yeah, the Lion King is Hamlet. Mm, interesting. So. Going back to ballet, <laughs> going back to the ballet. Um, yeah, I mean, I would go watch a Black Sabbath ballet. Uh, I remember back when I was training during the 90s, I think it was the Joffrey Ballet. They did, uh, it was neoclassical and they did um, to the songs of Prince. Um, and I, and I just remember at the time thinking, wow, that is amazing. Obviously, I was I was putting on ballet tights every day at that point. Um, and it just looks so exciting to, to, to dance to pop music, but doing ballet, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, look at all the jukebox musicals in town. That's exactly what the public want. They want to go and see a new presentation of art that they already know. It's exactly what ballet needs to and looks like it is tapping into with this Black Sabbath. Picking up music they know and presenting it in a new way. It really feels like this week, these two stories, it's tapping into what the future of ballet looks like. It gives me hope back for that genre that only a week ago I was like, nah, it's, it's lost unless something changes. Well, a Black Sabbath ballet. I mean, it just sounds amazing, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, when you look at these Black Sabbath ballets as well, when you look at the imagery from that production, it looks of this sort of era where actually... And Netflix could look at that and be like, you know what, that looks interesting. Let's scale that up to a movie set and produce it. And we may actually get a great ballet movie. Do you know I mean, this is where it needs to go. Where we look at musical theatre, something like on a Miz gets picked up and turned into a film. Feels like ballet might just be starting to hit on this territory now where something is about to crap back off. The genre could suddenly get reignited. It really is an incredible concept. Well, you, you know what's happened, Bailey, don't you? You know what's happened. The whole ballet world watched our first episode and they were like, Bailey, Bailey you're right. We've got to sort it out. Yeah, that's like, it. They snuck into our channel because at the time of recording, we've not even released it yet, but good on them. <laughs> Look, let me tell you something. If ballet now becomes like this, the bigger than it ever is, they'll be able to go back into the history and go, Look. It was these two guys, these two guys who 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 struck a chord with someone watching. I'm sure we've got like the the elitists the sitting there um, of ballet, you know, the owners of the the royal and this and Bolshoi. Just you know, what should I watch this week? Oh, I'll watch Bishop and Bailey. It's not Bishop and Bailey. It's Free Rings, Free Rings podcast. 
That's what they're watching. Um, yeah, that's it. It doesn't take any time at all to plan these ballets, does it? It's no. easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they literally did it. In a, they did it and got the advert out on the stage. I saw it. I saw it on the um, the stage notifications um, mail shot. That's how I saw it. Heard about it. So, yeah, they obviously got that out very quickly after what after after not watching our podcast because the first one it hasn't even been released. Yet, this one yet has it? No, not yet. Anyway, well, great episode. If I do, do say so myself. So before you leave us, if you haven't already. Get down below, give us a like, give us a comment, subscribe to the channel and make sure you've got that notification bell on. So, yeah, there it is. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Bailey. Nice one, Stuart. I'll see you next week. And I'll see you and Bailey again. Well, I'll see you, I'll see you in a minute, Bailey. We're going to have a meeting, aren't we? We've got, we've got to have a meeting about uh, things, agency stuff. But um, for the rest of you, we'll see each other next week's episode. Take care.